Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Race, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to head deep underground in search of the strange creatures haunting the mines of Wales, as well as some of the strange superstitions which plagued the miners working deep underground, including the fear of the basilisk. Yes, the basilisk, not just a legendary creature to be found in Harry Potter books, but also lurking in the dark caves of Wales. But to begin with, we are going to focus on the creatures known as the Coblunai. The Coblunai, or a singular Coblunai, is a Coblin. And these are a kind of fairy folk. One of the Welsh Tig, which were found traditionally in the mines of Wales, but could also be found elsewhere in the world. Now, the most popular variety can probably be found in Cornwall in lovely Kerno, where they are known as knockers for quite obvious reasons, really, for quite literal reasons. They're known as knockers because they knock to get your attention. You know if there's a knocker about because you hear a... There they are. Hence the name knockers. Now, the name Coblanai and Coblin does have a connection to the Cornish knockers, as we will explore later in this episode. But a very interesting part about the name, I think, which gives us a little clue as to the kind of characters we're dealing with, is that a single coblin sounds an awful lot like a goblin. And it has been said that the word goblin could indeed have been derived from the word coblin. And as I mentioned, these Coblanai are not restricted to Wales. They can be found in other places in the world where the Welsh have exported them, as it were, in places like North America. And they took this belief with them. So I'm thinking certainly in American states like Pennsylvania, the Coblanai were certainly at one point said to be in existence. Maybe they still are now. And in the case of my family, I have a distant relation who set off from Swansea to find fame and fortune in the mines of Wyoming. And who knows if there's somebody listening of Welsh descent in Wyoming right now, maybe we are related. And if you are troubled by Coblanai, maybe it's my distant relation's fault for taking the Coblanai from Swansea across the Atlantic to America. But anyway, let us crack on with the folklore. Now, our guide for this episode is going to be an old favourite on this podcast, the American folklorist Wirt Sykes. Wirt Sykes, who came to Wales in the 19th century, in the late Victorian age, spent his time, he was based in Cardiff, and while here, gathered this wonderful collection of Welsh folk tales and fairy tales and all manner of magical things. And he divided the fairies of Wales, the Tulloth Tig of Wales, into five different categories. 
some of which I've spoken about on previous episodes, some of which I will speak about on upcoming episodes, and of course, one of which I will talk about on this episode. And they were, number one, the elves, or the Athlon in Welsh. Number two, the Coblanai, or mind fairies. Number three, the Bubachod, or household fairies. Number four, the Gragev Anun, or fairies of the lakes and streams, and number five, the Gwithion, or mountain fairies. Now, as mentioned, number two, the Coblanai, or mine fairies, is our focus for this episode. And to begin at the beginning, let us take a look at Sykes's description of these mischievous creatures. And he tells us that under the general title of Coblanai, I class the fairies which haunt the mines, quarries, and underground regions of Wales corresponding to the Kabbalistic gnomes. The word coblin has the double meaning of knocker or thumper and sprite or fiend. So, Sykes is telling us that these creatures are very much like the gnomes of old, maybe not a million miles away from the kind of gnomes you might find in your garden nowadays. And I do love the idea of the double meaning with the name. He mentioned knocker there, referring back to the knockers, that connection with the knockers in Kerno. But of course, I do like the idea that this double meaning in the name was done intentionally. When the Coblanai, when the Coblin was named, I like to think that they knew that Coblin, on the one hand, meant knocker or thumper, but it also means sprite or fiend, as in goblin. Maybe there is more to this goblin connection than just a similar sounding name, but Sykes has more. And to return to Sykes, who tells us this name derives from the Welsh miners who use it to refer to, I quote, fairies which dwell in the mines and point out by a peculiar knocking or rapping rich veins of ore. So this isn't just random knocking for the sake of it, just to create a noise. There is a purpose to this knocking, and that purpose is, to quote once more, the indication of subterranean treasures, generally in caves and secret places of the mountains. So in this sense, he is telling us that as far as the Welsh miners were concerned, the Coblanai were useful. That knocking was a sound of there is something good, treasure even, to be found if you dig where we are knocking. So unlike the ghostly characters in the mines who knock to scare you away, and a very quick shameless plug alert, but you can read about some of the scarier variety of ghosts in the mines in my Ghosts of Wales book, available from all good bookshops, blah blah blah. But back to it, the Coblanai, these are good knocks, but... What do they look like? Well, he also gives us a description of their appearance, and he says, The Coblanai are described as being about half a yard in height and very ugly to look upon, but extremely good-natured and warm friends of the miner. Their dress is a grotesque imitation of the miner's garb, and they carry tiny hammers 
picks and lamps. They work busily, loading ore in buckets, flitting about the shafts, turning tiny windlasses and pounding away like madmen, but really accomplish nothing whatever. And I think that description, maybe not the, the ugly part so much, but I think that description of these short creatures dressed, looking a bit like miners, hammering away, working away, filling buckets, will bring to mind the image, certainly for, for fantasy fans, Tolkien fans, Games Workshop fans, this brings to mind the modern-day depiction of dwarfs in these, these works of fiction, but the idea that they are underground, hammering away, looking for, looking for their gold, is very much how we see Gimli and the rest of the clan depicted on the big screen today. And just to wrap up his description, I did say that these creatures are seen as being quite helpful, quite useful to the Welsh miners, pointing out where they should be digging. But Sykes does tell us they have been known to throw stones at the miners when enraged at being lightly spoken of. But the stones are harmless. The stones are harmless. I don't know if that's intentional or if they just aren't strong enough to throw them with enough force to, to harm somebody. But nevertheless, don't go talking lightly of the Koblanai. And all miners, we are told, of a proper spirit refrain from provoking them because their presence brings good luck. I mean, if for no other reason than the fact that they knock on the walls to point out where you should be digging, they make your life much easier. You might even find treasure. I'd say that in itself is good luck. Now, that is Sykes's description of the Koblanai. But what about some first-hand accounts? Because while Sykes himself did not encounter them, he did record details which were published in newspapers and from speaking to people who did indeed believe they had encountered the Koblanai in the wild, as it were. And as Sykes points out, the tough, rough and rugged Welsh miners you would assume would be the last people to publicly admit to bumping into fairies underground. And he says miners are possibly no more superstitious than other men of equal intelligence. And so he, he's telling us the miners were no less and no more superstitious than anyone else at the time. And he does give some examples of the superstitions of the miners, one of which was published in the Oswestry Advertiser a few years before he published his book, so in the early 1870s, when a woman is employed as a messenger at one of the collieries, one of the collieries in Wales, and as she commences her duty early each morning, she meets great numbers of colliers going to their work. Some of them, we are gravely assured, consider it a bad omen to meet a woman first thing in the morning and not having succeeded in deterring her from her work by other means, they waited upon the manager and declared that they should remain at home unless the woman was dismissed. So never mind the fairies, never mind being scared of mine fairies, some of these miners were scared of a woman, a normal woman by the sounds of it, just 
going about her duties. And while I don't know what methods they did try to get rid of her, certainly going to the manager seemed to do the trick. And to further make his point, Sykes does give us a second example of the kind of superstitious beliefs these miners held, and this was published in the South Wales Daily News in 1878, so a few years later, which reported that some thousands of men refused to work on Ascension Day at Penryn. The quarrymen of Penryn, thousands of them, not just one or two, thousands, refused to work on Ascension Day. And we are told that the refusal did not arise out of any reverential feeling, but from an old and widespread superstition. So it's not because they wanted to be in church or anything. It is purely down to an old superstition which has lingered in that district for years. That if work is continued on Ascension Day, an accident will follow. And it would appear the men had evidence of this, some solid evidence why they shouldn't work, because a few years earlier, the agents had persuaded the men to break through the superstition, and sure enough, there were indeed accidents each year. Now, as Sykes points out, accidents in a mine is not really an unlikely incident considering how much work is going on and the dangerous nature of the occupation of the men. But nevertheless, this year in 1878, the men, one and all, refused to work. So, after those examples, you might be led to believe that yes, these miners are a superstitious bunch, but as Sykes has already told us, they were no more superstitious than anyone else, and he is very keen to stress this. He tells us that we should not take from this that the Welsh miners were in any way less intelligent than anyone else. And to quote, he says, I should be very sorry if any reader would conclude from all this that the Welsh miners are not in the main intelligent church-going, newspaper-reading men. The Welsh miners were intelligent, church-going, newspaper-reading men. And I do love that description of the, the, the cultured miner, as it were, because there is this stereotype, isn't there, that Welsh miners, that any miners, for some reason, because of the nature of the work they do, they're not as sophisticated as other people, which, of course, is absolute rubbish. And I think Sykes makes a very important point by stressing that. And also, he does give some scientific explanations, which might explain what was going on down in the mines. And remember I mentioned that basilisk? Well, there might be a scientific explanation for that mythical creature as well. And to quote Sykes once more, he tells us that it can hardly be cause for wonder that the miner should be superstitious. His life is passed in a dark and gloomy region fathoms below the Earth's green surface, surrounded by walls on which dim lamps shed a fitful light. It is not surprising that imagination, and the Welsh imagination is peculiarly vivid, should conjure up the faces and forms of gnomes and coblanai, of phantoms and fairy men. 
When they hear the mysterious thumping, which they know is not produced by any human being, and when, in examining the place where the noise was heard, they find there are really valuable indications of awe. The sturdiest incredulity must sometimes be shaken. So Sykes is saying it's hardly surprising that people working in such terrible, terrible, dark, bleak conditions are seeing faces and strange things in the shadows. People still report that now you see that on ghost hunting shows on TV where people are, are jumping at shadows and things because we don't know what's out there. And when they hear these knocking sounds and they follow them and they discover treasure as a result of it, yes, that might seem magical. It might seem like the work of the mind fairies, but even in the Victorian age, science was on hand to, to spoil the party, to spoil the more fantastical explanations and provide a more rational one. And while those knocking noises might be produced by the work of the Cobblunai, they might be produced by the action of water upon the loose stones in fissures and potholes of the mountain limestones and does actually suggest the presence of metals. So it would appear that water, plain old water, can also detect and alert people to these treasures in the same way as the Koblanai. And the next one which he dispels is even more important, never mind the Koblanai, but for this one, before the discovery of carbonic acid gas, a deadly, deadly killer which just wipes out all animal life. When a miner was smitten dead by this invisible foe in the deep bowels of the earth, it was natural his awestruck companions should ascribe the mysterious blow to a supernatural enemy. Sadly, we now know it is far from supernatural. Or when the workman was assailed suddenly by what we now call fire damp, which hurled him and his companions right and left upon the dark rocks, scorching, burning and killing those who survived were not likely to question the existence of the mine fiend. Hence arose the superstition, now probably quite extinct, of basilisks in the mine. Basilisks which destroyed with their terrible gaze. When the explanation came that the thing which killed the miner was what he breathed, not what he saw, and when chemistry took the fire damp from the domain of the fairy, the basilisk and the fire fiend had not a leg to stand on. And this really is the more tragic end of folklore. And it's one of those examples where you are glad science has found a way to, to dismiss this killer. And the basilisk was banished from the mines, but not from popular culture, of course, and I think for a lot of people nowadays when they think of a basilisk, they are going to think of the Harry Potter books and films, although for me personally, it is synonymous with the city of Basel, which is just covered in basilisks. If, if you're interested in basilisks, you'll find sculptures of the many, many sculptures dotted all over lovely, lovely Basel, on the walls and the fountains everywhere. 
But never mind Basel, never mind the basilisk. While that has been dismissed by Sykes, he hasn't quite totally dismissed the cobble on eye. Yes, yes, I know he said the water might be causing the knocking noises, and that may or may not well be true. But he has not stolen all of the magic from the mine fairies yet, because, despite what you might have been led to believe, they are not restricted to their underground lairs. And in fact, there are accounts from people who have encountered them out and about on the mountains of wild Wales. And Sykes tells us that they are seen in the form of dwarves, as mentioned earlier. It's that popular image of them as a dwarf. And whenever they are seen or heard, they are believed to have escaped from the mines or the secret regions of the mountains. Their homes are hidden from mortal vision. When encountered, either in the mines or on the mountains, they have strayed from their special abodes, which are as spectral as themselves. And while these homes might be spectral, as Sykes tells us, he has, like he always does, he has tracked down first-hand account of somebody who has indeed encountered, has seen one of these spectral homes. Now, this description was printed in 1813 at Newport, Monmouthshire, he tells us, but that would be modern-day the city of Newport in Newport, and it concerns a William Evans and it was while William Evans was crossing the Beacon Mountains, so the Bracken Beacons, very early in the morning, he passed a fairy coal mine where fairies were busily at work. He tells us that some were cutting the coal, some carrying it to fill the sacks, some raising the loads upon the horses' backs, so there were horses there with the Koblanai, and so on. But all in the completest silence. They made no sound as they went about this, what you would imagine, quite noisy work. Now, William Evans thought this, to quote, a wonderful extra-natural thing. A lovely description. A wonderful extra-natural thing. And he was considerably impressed by it, for well he knew that there really was no coal mine at the place. And as is a common feature of these 19th century tales, and it's something which crops up on this podcast again and again and again, Sykes does stress that this witness was sober and not mad, and he says he was a person of undoubted veracity, and what is more, a great man in the world who was above telling an untruth. So we can trust this man, we can trust William Evans, he was above telling an untruth, and he saw this silent, magical coal mine being dug by the Koblanai and their horses one day in the early 1800s, or, or thereabout. His, his account was published in 1813, at least. And we also have a second account, a second first-hand account of somebody encountering these Koblanai 
above ground, as it were. And this one takes place in Denbyshire. And it concerns a pious young gentleman called Egbert Williams. Egbert Williams, who at the time of this tale was still at school, so a very young gentleman. And it was one day while playing in a field called Kai Khaled. Kai Khaled in the parish of Bodvary with three girls, one of whom was his sister. So the scene is set, they're in a field, there's him, three girls, one of which was his sister. And near the stile, beyond Lanelloyd House, they saw a company of 15 or 16 Coblanai engaged in dancing madly. Dancing madly. So not only do they mine the Coblanai like a good old dance by the sound of it, they were dancing madly and they were in the middle of the field, about 70 yards from the spectators, and they danced something after the manner of Morris dancers. So not only did they love dancing, they loved Morris dancing, but with a wildness and a swiftness in their motions, which must have been quite a sight to behold. I mean, Morris dancing in and of itself can get a bit swift and a bit wild. Imagine that, even, even wilder and even swifter. And they were clothed in red, like British soldiers, British soldiers at the time, and they wore red handkerchiefs spotted with yellow wound round their heads. And I don't know if you are visualising this scene as I'm talking. If so, it does get stranger and stranger with each additional detail. But there they are, dancing madly, dressed all in red with these handkerchiefs on their heads. And a strange circumstance about them was that Although they were almost as big as ordinary men, yet they had unmistakably the appearance of dwarves. So if you were wondering at this point, how can we tell these mad dancing fairies are Coblanai and not one of the other varieties Sykes has spoken of? Well, I think it's that appearance. They look like dwarves even if they are dwarves dressed up as British soldiers and dancing madly. The scene does get stranger. But presently, one of them left the company and ran towards the group near the stile, ran towards the four young people who were, to quote, direfully scared thereby. They were scared and scrambled in great fright to go over the stile. One of the girls, whose name we are told is Barbara Jones, one of the girls, Barbara Jones, was the first to get over the stile. Then her sister. And as Egbert Williams was helping his own sister over, so it sounds like Egbert legged it and left his sister behind, but as he was helping his own sister over, they saw the coblin close upon them and barely got over when his hairy hand was laid on the stile. He stood leaning on it, gazing after them as they ran, with a grim, copper-colour countenance and a fierce look. The young people ran to Len Elloyd House and called the elders out. But though they hurried quickly to the field, 
the dwarves had already disappeared. And that brings us to the end of our second tale of the cobbler and I being encountered out in the great wide world. And it also brings us to the end of our latest episode exploring the fairy folk of Taloth Teg of Wales. Now, as mentioned, this is just the latest in an ongoing series of works looking at the research of Wirt Sykes, who I like to look at every couple of months or so. The last episode was number 52, I believe. I'm, I'm slightly losing track, but number 52, in which we looked at the, the strange fairy lights which lead travellers astray, much like the, the, the Will of the Wisp. That was episode 52. If you did want to go back and check out more similar tales, and of course, if you don't want to miss the next one when it pops up, be sure to hit the subscribe button, and you will never miss an episode ever. And as always, if you have any thoughts, any ideas, any suggestions on this episode or any episode, I am quite easy to track down online, on social media, and it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am grando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best. It's the beautiful. It's the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, no star. No star.